Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey, hey, Feelin' Film family, and welcome to episode 160. I'm Aaron, and here with me is my fellow movie theme explorer, Patrick. Hello, everyone. Tonight, we're going to be discussing the Leica Studios' newest stop-motion animated film, Missing Link. This Portland, Oregon animation group is helmed by animator and director Travis Knight, a.k.a. the son of legendary Nike founder Phil Knight, in case you were not aware of that and routinely wows us with gorgeous visuals and charming stories. We'll dig in soon and work through why we think Missing Link is another great entry in Leica's catalog. But first, an announcement, or I guess I should say, two announcements. The first announcement is that we are thrilled to share that our podcasting team has expanded once more. Aaron Hundley is a Seattle-based writer and freelance film critic currently writing and editing articles for her blog, Essentially Aaron. But you've heard Aaron on episode 145, Titanic, and also our most recent FF Plus episode as well, and you've probably read some of her reviews on our website. Both she and fellow new co-host Colesse Davis will be appearing monthly on FF Plus, and also a few times every quarter on the main show too. We couldn't be happier to add Aaron to the team, and we're really excited about what she is going to bring to Feel and Film. The second announcement is that we wanted to let you know that our April Donor Pick episode has been chosen. We'll be discussing the graphic novel adaptation Snowpiercer, and then dropping a bonus episode for our patrons where we list our top five heroines who kick ass. If you want access to voting in these monthly polls and listening to that cool bonus content, you can visit patreon.com slash film to become a supporter. Now, Patrick, I got to ask real quick. Have you seen Snowpiercer? No, I have not. Oh, goody. <laughs> goody, goody, goody. You don't know anything about it. That's nope. fantastic. Let's I'm, just go in blind. I mean, why not? Yes, let's definitely go in blind. <laughs> this should be fun. This should be fun. All right, well, I'm going to give our obligatory spoiler warning real quick. If you haven't seen Missing Link, I definitely recommend that you do so. I think it's a great family film and one that you should take your family to see. Uh, even more so than Shazam in a lot of ways, because there are no scary monsters in this one that are going to be eating any of the animated humans. Uh, Patrick, would you agree that this is a good one for a family to go see? Well, absolutely. I had a chance to actually see this with my family, which is a rare thing. The last time the three of us went to a movie was, I want to say, two Christmases ago when we went to go see Ferdinand. So that's how long it's been since the three of us have gone to see a movie. Now, I've seen movies with my wow. wife. And I've seen a couple of movies with my son. I think we went to go see Lego 2. But um, it's it's a rare thing when the three of us all kind of agree that a movie is worth going and we should all go. So And we weren't disappointed. Absolutely. And this is way better than Ferdinand, listeners. So if you haven't seen it, make your way out. Patrick doesn't get a chance to speak to in Red Little. Just make your way out, go see <laughs> Missing Link, and then uh, come listen to this episode so that we don't spoil it for you. All I was right. going to agree with you. I mean, oh. it was we tried to convince him to go see The Greatest Showman. <laughs> I remember. Which he, which he loves. Now. But in hindsight, right? Yeah. And I'm like, see? But there's a have... talking bull, Dad. <laughs> It's cartoon. That's all he cared about right. at age four. Well, hard to, hard to fault him. That's yeah. all I care about now, and I'm age not four. But it has a, almost has a four in it. Okay, I digress. <laughs> okay. One word takeaways. Patrick, why don't you kick us off first? The word legend came to mind when I when I left the left the theater, and I started thinking about it in terms of the the duality of its meaning. One being a traditional story, sometimes popularly regarded as historical but unauthenticated. And then an extremely famous or notorious person, uh, especially in a particular field. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Google Webster. And I, I thought about this definition. And I think both of these definitions actually resonate deeply with the themes of the movie. Much of the movie is centered around Frost's pursuit to become a legend in his own field. But he also fights against this notion that his discoveries, like legends, are self-regarded as historical but definitely unauthenticated. I mean, we open up with this great scene where he is clearly getting a picture of a Loch Ness Monster, and then something happens where his camera breaks. 
sure enough. And um, there's actually a quote from Adelina. Is that how we pronounce her? Adelina? Adeline. Adeline. Or, I so thought it was I Adeline. Was, it, well, we'll go ahead and go with yours because you sound more confident than I do. But she says, you seem to care so much about these legends you chase, but there's really only one legend you actually care about. And I think that line sums up one of the big ideas of the movie that I'm um, assuming we'll get into here in the next little bit. The movie plays with that, what it means to be a legend, how a person can get there, and, and what that can really mean when you actually find it. Uh, it's not surprising that ideas like this come from like animation. I mean, coming from the same studio that brought us Kubo. And I think it was also a really entertaining movie, as I said before. So this is definitely something that you can appreciate on multiple levels as a kid or as an adult. And uh, I would say, go for it. Watch it. See it. Enjoy it. And enjoy Hugh Jackman, as I mentioned it. Yes, yes, absolutely. Hugh Jackman was a treat, as was the majority of the voice cast in this one. Sure, for sure. Well, my one word takeaway for this is surprising. I'm a big Leica fan. Uh, pretty much everything other than box trolls. I, you know, I want to, I'm going to totally go off script here for a quick second. I did not have a good experience with box trolls when I first saw that movie. I saw it at about 11 o'clock at night one day, and I remember having a really hard time staying awake and just being frustrated with the weirdness of the story. I don't gravitate toward strange land. I, it, it's hard to explain what that world is to me, but for some reason, it just didn't work for me. And it's been the one Leica movie that I've always wondered if it was just me and my experience or if it was Leica. I'm happy to report that I did rewatch it, and it has a lot to like in it. It's a sweet film, and because of that, I actually enjoy all of Leica's movies. But they've gotten progressively better and better for me. So since Kubo and the Two Strings had blown me away and is really one of the best animated films I've ever seen, it makes... Everything Leica does must see for me. And that is despite the fact that this trailer for Missing Link did nothing for me. In fact, I almost skipped seeing the movie because I thought it was going to be just another big, dumb Bigfoot story, like last year's Smallfoot movie. I didn't enjoy the trailer despite Hugh Jackson Jackman's presence, and I was really worried about it, to be honest. But I shouldn't have doubted the geniuses at Leica because the heartfelt, smart adventure that we were treated to was really refreshingly surprising. I laughed out loud multiple times, gut laughed, and thoroughly enjoyed getting to know the characters of this world. I was also, again, really surprised by the advances in the stop motion animation that it seems like Leica continues to make. This is a gorgeous film. It's super fun. And yet it also touches on pretty big themes like identity and colonialism. I wasn't really expecting to come out having it be my second favorite Leica film, but here we are. I'm happy to report that it is. Wow, that is surprising. Because I definitely remember when the trailer came out and you were almost like eye roll emojis because you were like, this looks dumb. And I was like, never doubt Hugh Jackman. And I, and I say that very much tongue in cheek because as much as I love the guy, there are definitely movies out there that I'm like, mm, no, sorry, can't get on board with that. And I was apprehensive about it. And I'm really glad that it made its way to our schedule because it wasn't necessarily on the schedule. was definitely had, not on the schedule. Yeah, we had an opening. And we were like, what do we put here? And you said, hey, look, I actually really enjoyed this. Would you go see it since you missed out on Shazam? And I said, absolutely. Yep, it worked out. So. All right, well, Missing Link is a globe-trotting adventure, which was one of the things I really loved about it. And Lionel Frost, the explorer here, he is channeling the traits of classic heroes like Indiana Jones and Nathan Drake, as well as real-life explorers like Percy Fawcett. So I'm wondering how you felt about that. Did you enjoy visiting all these different locations throughout the film, or were you expecting it to stay in the Pacific Northwest to the point where it maybe kind of was distracting that it didn't do that. And it took us on this bigger world uh, exploration. Well, I didn't really know what to expect when you deal with something like Bigfoot or Sasquatch. I thought, yeah, we'd probably hang out in the Pacific Northwest since this is where we are. But at the same time, I enjoyed the fact that we went global in 
what really took me by surprise was how many of these deliberate references to Indiana Jones specifically that I recognized in here. There, there are moments when, when you have characters that act like Marcus Brody, who I absolutely adore in the Indiana Jones movies. There are almost like shot for shot moments where you have like hanging people from, from ladders that are about to get thrown into a, a pit of some kind. It's, it's almost as if there was a tribute to that trilogy in and of itself because there were pockets of, of moments where, oh, I could see that in The Last Crusade, or I remember seeing that in Temple of Doom or Raiders of the Lost Ark. And to me, that's smart because Indiana Jones specifically is such an iconic character. He's a serial. He I almost, it made me think when I left the theater going, hey, this would be fun to be a series. You know, the adventures of these two guys after, you know, the credits roll, we're like, where would they go next? And so being able to see how Frost starts out looking for the Loch Ness monster and then he ends up leaving, you know, going on this big adventure and then we get the hint that he's going to go to Atlantis at some point. I, I love that. I think that that exploration, I think not only is entertaining, but I think it also works in the same vein that the Percy Jackson books do in that they kind of give a new worldview to understanding historical exploration and legendary exploration for someone who is younger instead of, you know, adults. So what Percy Jackson does for mythology, I think this movie kind of does for world exploration and exploring different kinds of mysterious creatures, whether they're real or not. Yeah, I, I love how we get thrown into this world with this amazing opening bit of him going after the Loch Ness Monster. And what's fun is it's something that is recognizable pretty quickly to everyone in the audience. And I, I wonder how children might react to this. And if Carson, your son, picked up on that right away, or was it like just this cute little monster that he didn't really have any sort of context for? Yeah, he did he didn't know about Loch Ness. Okay. So he saw this goofy he saw this goofy monster and laughed at the fact that it was dragging these two characters around the lake. And to him that was all he needed. It was just really funny. I picked up on the subtext, obviously, and I think for me the best part about that was seeing how calm and collected Frost was as if this is just like a Wednesday for him, right? I mean, this is what he does. And of course his it's juxtaposed against his assistant who is just completely being freaked out and possibly going to get eaten by this thing. But I think he does get a, eaten by this thing temporarily. <laughs> Briefly. <yeah. laughs> he was not, but for, I think for kids, it comes across as very much approachable. And that was a big fear of mine. When I saw some of these, some of these images, I was like, Oh my gosh, is this going to be too much? But it never got to the, pl to the point where it felt overly scary at least from what I saw from him. And um, I think the biggest fear came from my wife when she was going to say, is this going to be talking about evolution? And I said, no, I don't believe it is. <laughs> and in my mind, I was like, oh gosh, are they going to go there? But no, I, I think it's such an approachable movie in terms of its visual stylings, in terms of the way in which they portray these monsters to a point where they're like scary, but they have this goofy quality to them that, that kind of balance that out. Yeah, exactly why I really liked it and enjoyed it. And being able to realize immediately, okay, this is what is happening. It's something that's not shown in the trailer, and I love that. To me, it feels like this is the kind of scene that so many trailers would spoil by yeah, giving absolutely. you a glimpse like, oh, there's a glimpse of him, you know, finding a Loch Ness monster. And we would know it going in, but we got to be surprised by that. And so I really enjoyed that because it was set me in the, the mindset of, okay, now I understand what I'm watching. This is an explorer, an adventurer who is not just going to be going after Sasquatch. He's got a history of going against it. And it immediately lets you know what Frost is without exposition, without him like sitting there and telling you, I'm a big explorer. I go after unknown animals, yada, yada, yada. We just immediately know that. Yeah, it's a, it's equally as much his story as it is Sasquatch. It, it's both of those and the trailers give kind of pause to that. They say, no, it, it may not be about him. I mean, it's clearly about Link himself, 
from the trailers, but I love the fact that we're unpacking this equal character from the point of a frost point of view and how they how they had that kind of chemistry together how they work together how they interact together and i think it enhances what we saw from the trailers because i wanted more frost after seeing that opening scene i was like he seems more interesting now much more than he was just sort of a side character or a companion of Link himself. Yeah, the trailer makes it seem like he's there just to discover Mr. Link. Like, right. his only sole purpose is to be the vehicle that conveys the discovery, whereas it's so much deeper than that once we get into it. And But back to the vistas and the locales, I, I just loved it. I mean, we had snowy mountains, we had jungles, we had that amazing set piece on the ship, which is one of the ones that kind of calls back to Indiana Jones. This film really reminded me, I said Nathan Drake when I was talking about this, because Nathan Drake is the protagonist in a video game series called Uncharted, and one of the games specifically deals with him finding and exploring his way to Shangri-La. And when we open up in some of these gorgeously amazing animated scenes to where the mountains kind of go over the horizon and you see Shangri-La for the first time, it looked just like it did in the video game. And I was like, man, that's pretty awesome that they're both drawing from inspired works and descriptions in books. And they're essentially creating it in a very similar way, um, both of which truly did look almost like what you would expect for a utopia Absolutely. to look like. Um, and just, I think, I had so much fun globetrotting, you know, trying to get on a train. And there's a, a great moment at the train station where they have to give Stank the which is just a crazy name for a villain. I, I keep wanting to call him Skank. So I apologize, listeners, if I accidentally call him Mr. Skank. But Mr. Stank. He's not really apologizing. He wants to do it. <laughs> I do. And they're <laughs> trying to give him the slip. But it's all about, you know, like you're thinking it's realistic. They've got to get on a train to go across the country at this time in this era they've got to get on these big transport ships at one point i actually wondered i was like oh no are they going to end up on the titanic because oh you know this is <laughs> like i felt like that might be something that happened but yeah I, I really enjoyed all of the set pieces and different running around the world that yeah. was done in this movie something that i found really interesting uh, before we move on is i love the transition travel points where we show him marking through, you know, crossing the, you know, crossing the, the river or river, sorry, crossing the ocean and then marking his map from the United States going from the, you know, the, the East Coast to the West Coast. And that was clearly a throwback to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Temple of Doom and, and Last Crusade. And I, I, I always gravitated towards those things. And I love the fact that they included that because it just, it really enhances who he is as an explorer. I mean, he has to, chart it out he has to say okay we've got to go here and go here at one point aaron i wanted him to dip down into arkansas he didn't but that was okay you know he just kind of brushed the state a little bit on the the top part like missouri and then moved on and i was like yeah but why would you want to come to arkansas well you know maybe there's a crazy beast in arkansas that needs to be discovered i i did get a kick out of the fact that it was old kemp's creek in washington state and it, that's where the bigfoot was being sighted because you know, that is something very specific to the Pacific Northwest. And it was fun to get to see our forest animated in that way. I mean, this is a, these are the forests that I go hiking in, you know, frequently on my weekends. And they looked just like what I'm used to going out into. So, you know, maybe one day I will meet Mr. Link as well. And we'll just have a good old time. And I will give him a hat or something of the sort. Um, so Sir Lionel Frost is a man who seeks status. You talked about this some in your opening one word takeaway. And Mr. Link is seeking community, family, a place to belong, really. How is what the two seek similar and how did it differ in your opinion? Well, I think that Mr. Link's and Frost's motivation really go back to finding a place to belong for frost his status i think he feels like would give him that kind of place to belong that they wouldn't really he wouldn't really be anywhere without this society that he wants to be a part of 
Mr. Link wants that same kind of belonging, but in a different way. He is isolated. Both of them are isolated, but for different reasons. And I think that they share that isolation together. And I think there's something really interesting about the fact that both of them are seeking those things that you mentioned specifically for Mr. Link, community and a place to belong. But I think that Frost is unknowingly looking for those same things because of the fact that he feels isolated. Now, his isolation comes from the fact that he has all these things that he's discovered, but he can't prove. And yet the person, the one thing that he can prove, Mr. Link, who he's with the majority of the film is ending up being the thing that he ends up that he needs ultimately. Like he realizes, you know what? My relationship with this guy, that sense of companionship is really what I was seeking the whole time, even though I didn't know it. Of course, you have to go on an adventure to discover that. But I think in their own ways, they both are looking for those things. They're just looking for them from two different vantage points. One, I think, is more selfless and one is more selfish. Absolutely. One is more selfish and one is more selfless. I think that is one of the strong distinctions between the two characters. And of course, what helps drive some of the dramatic conflict between them. You know, it's interesting because he, Mr. Link, that is, wants so badly to find people like him. And it kind of hurt me a little bit or, or made me feel very deeply for him when he's explaining like he's the only one he's all alone he's living this life out here in this world by himself and so his only hope is to go to the extent of writing a letter to the potentially scary human to come discover him to help him try and trek across the country to find these long lost cousins and it's it's so different than the way that frost is looking to belong He's trying to kind of uh, force his way into this society, um, and they're all around him already. He's not isolated and alone, at least, or I, I would say he doesn't feel like he's isolated and alone, but in reality, they kind of both are. He isolates himself because of his actions, whereas Mr. Link is isolated not because of his actions, but because of his environment. It's almost like a nature-nurture thing where... It's because of the choices that Frost makes that he's alone. Mr. Link's loneliness is due to the fact that that's the world that he lives in. He hasn't had an opportunity to be connected. And so I think that's an interesting juxtaposition of these two characters where their isolation is motivated by two different things. And I don't think they realize that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also... It's interesting because they're both trying to get to become a part of a group of people who ultimately don't want them to be part of them. And Frost is doing it despite the fact that he knows this. Mr. Link does not really know this until he gets to the Shangri-La area and meets the Yetis. He doesn't know that they're going to reject him. Frost has kind of been rejected and just wants to prove himself over and over and over. And so... It's really, I think, it allows Frost to ultimately be able to empathize with and understand Mr. Ling in the end, more so, because he's gone through this experience where he's wanting to be part of this group that doesn't want him. I also found it interesting how we have characters that sort of prop up the group they want to be a part of. And Mr. Link thinks of these Yeti cousins. He calls them badass Yeti warriors. Um, he clearly has a high view of them. They're, they're almost special in a way. And Frost does the same for the Explorer Society. Like these are very important people in his mind that he wants to be a part of. When in reality, from everything we've seen, he's the only one that's ever actually accomplished anything. Like, we don't see them do anything other than sit around and drink wine and, you know, shoot their guns off. And they don't shoot them off, but he, you know, look at their trophies on the wall, etc. And it's fun because it's seemingly a clear reference, I think, to the actual real-life Royal Geographical Society of Explorers. Um, they're led by this dastardly Lord Piggott Dunsby. 
which is definitely a good villain name, by the way. Um, and, and he cannot fathom Frost's nonsense being associated with them. He just wants to wipe his hands of Frost. Like, he doesn't want anything to do with him because he's seeking these fantastic creatures that they don't even believe in. And he can't handle his prideful organization being mentioned in the same name as Frost. And so he goes to these links to stop Frost from discovering anything. And it's all out of Pickett Dunsby's desire for control and power um, over this organization that he has and this, this little bubble in society, his place, his status. I wondered what you thought of that. And how do you think, what do you think the film is trying to say about the depiction of the Royal Expeditionary Society and the way in which they are the villains of this movie. Well, I want to I want to connect two pieces that I kind of picked up based off of the way you describe this society. And it seems to me that Piggott is less about keeping keeping Frost out of the society and more about preserving tradition. And yes, it comes from a place of not wanting to be embarrassed about these obnoxious discoveries or apparent discoveries of things that may or may not exist. So I, I get that. I'll give him that. But he is doing everything in his power to prevent Frost from even trying to discover. So that tells me two things. One, he possibly believes in these things. And two, if that actually comes to fruition, if Frost makes this big discovery, it's going to change everything. It's going to change the nature of this society. And it's going to wreak havoc among the traditions of that society. Well, later on, the Yeti society almost does something very similar. In fact, there is a, there's a line where the Yeti leader, I don't remember his or her name, but she says, he says something and Frost goes, it's barbaric about talking about keeping everybody out of of Shangri-La and he responds he says no it's preservation and I think there's something very similar to that where Frost is at the epicenter of both of these worlds he has the opportunity to change the game for this discovery society here he also has the opportunity to change the game to be a at least a part of Shangri-La and neither of these groups for different reasons, but for the same motives are trying to keep him out. They don't want things to change. They want to keep things as they are. They want to think they want to stay in control. And I only picked this up because there's some stuff going on in my world personally that is challenging that. And I think that it, it comes to light when you see a group of people who for years and years and years have apparently said this is how it is. And so any change in that is going to disrupt probably beyond their control and therefore it doesn't seem like a good thing. And I think for both the um, the society and the Yeti community, Frost represents change for them and it doesn't feel good to them. And that's kind of what I picked up on. So I can understand it, but I can also see some of the selfishness behind both of these groups and how Frost is the catalyst for questioning that. Yeah, that's actually really good. I would agree. And I think that, in a way, it's positive that he does discover them, because they're forced to reckon with the idea of potentially non-dangerous explorers, I guess, is what I would say for the Yetis. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it plays out sort of in the silly way where the ice bridge breaks and, you know, they become cut off from the rest of the world. And so you would think in theoretically, like there's no way for them to ever have contact again. They essentially get what they want in their little world of utopia. And I think the film is showing us utopia is not a place. You know, it's more of a state of mind. And if you're jerks and you can't be welcoming of others and compassionate and friendly, then it's not really a utopia no matter what it looks like in the mountainsides. With the villains that are going up against Frost, I just found it to be such a strong critique of the 
patriarchy a lot of ways um, without being a movie that hits you over the head with it. Because Piggy Dunsby and Stank, his hired goon, they have an issue with anyone challenging their status quo. Anything that's going to take away their ability to write the narrative of what the world is like. And that's what this boils down to, is this is an explorer society who does just that. They tell the world what's out there. They're the ones who set that in motion. It reminded me of a book I've been reading called Stamped in the Beginning. And it's all about the beginning of racist ideas in the world. And one of the things I learned from reading this book is about how so many explorers into Africa wrote history in a way that changed how people thought going forward. And if that cycle is never broken, then the influence becomes this snowball that just grows and grows and grows. And as we've seen in today, how racist ideas have evolved and continued to grow from that time period to all the way through slavery. And that's how I see what Piggott Dunsby is wanting to do. And not necessarily intentionally that kind of a dastardly type of thought, but it could be. It's wanting to change the narrative of what is really out in the world to fit your viewpoint. It's, I mean, it's definitely self-protection because if you were to discover Loch Ness or the Yetis or Sasquatch, it would completely change the game of who you are as a society, not just as an upper crust society like you mentioned, but even within this small group of people, he's no longer the guy telling the stories. As far as we know, he hasn't made a discovery in years and years and years. So he and these other guys are just hanging on their laurels and telling these stories over and over again that probably get bigger and bigger, like the guy who was a big high school football star but never made it anywhere after that. And I feel like that's kind of what we're getting in that these guys are living in the past, living off of the prestige that they got initially, but nothing has changed. And when that's threatened, you have what I would consider, and this is what surprised me about the movie, a drastic approach to not letting Frost get what he wants. It was a blunt statement. I'm going to kill Lionel Frost. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is, uh, is this a kid's movie still? Because this is getting serious. I thought we're talking about, you know, cartoon violence or whatever. But this guy, you know, is putting a gun to people's faces. And I'm like, he's going to kill people. This is this is crazy. But the motive behind that, the extreme way in which we get these these villains, because you know, there's two of them, essentially, and how they deal with this really represents this idea that they don't want change. Any kind of change is threatening. And to speak back to what you were saying, if you can't write the narrative, you can't control what the future holds. And so it's almost pointless to even try unless you get rid of the one person or the people that are trying to make that change. So that's an interesting parallel that you made. Yeah, I, I would totally. I think you said that so well. Um, the other thing that I really thought was nicely, subtly done was there's just a couple of lines of dialogue that are funny, but they made me think. One is when the Yeti Queen calls Susan a redneck country cousin. I found that it's it's played for laughs, right? But what it really is showing us is like these yetis are racist in their own right against something they don't know anything better of. They have this preconceived notion of what the Sasquatch are like, even though they've never met them. And it's very similar to how Frost goes into meeting Mr. Link with a preconceived set of notions and is blown away by, oh, you can speak? Oh, you, you're polite? Like, the, the, one of the funniest parts of the movie is the fact that Mr. Link is, is very well aware and very, and can, and can communicate in such a great way, but is very literal 
and doesn't understand nuance of English language. So he can speak it, but when Frost says something that is specific, he will, he will take it for, at face value. And it creates a lot of comedic situations. Um, but again, it's, it's like, ex, it's expectations and kind of stereotypes being flipped on their head. And then there's another great moment where Adeline, I believe, is meeting with the old lady in the mountains prior to them going to Shangri-La. And she mentions about Englishmen abroad and how obnoxious they are and they treat people like idiots because they talk down to people. And for some reason, it, it was just this little bit of comedy, but it really struck me. I was like, gosh, that's so true. I mean, how, how often do I do that when I was overseas in the past? When I, you know, can you understand me? I am speaking English. You know what I mean? Like as if someone in Spain who speaks fluent Spanish is going to understand me better because I'm speaking English at them in a very slow manner, you know? And it's this inherent kind of place that we come from where I think we believe the world should be on our level versus meeting the world and especially these various locations and people that they are coming upon like on their own terms, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think every character, with the exception of Mr. Link, and purposefully so, represents a personal ethnocentrism that I think exists within their characters, but also reflects who we are as people. I mean, I have a biased ethnocentrism that exists in me as a white male American that I have to be very conscious of when it comes to interacting with people that are not like me. And it's obviously become more heightened with the race relations issues that we've had in our country. But you're right, even going overseas, back in like the 70s and 80s, when there were missionaries from the United States that went overseas, they didn't go, they went with the intent to evangelize. But what ended up happening in a lot of ways is they westernized in addition to evangelize. And so what you see now is when I go over to Kenya or I get a chance to meet people who are culturally different, I still see pockets of Western Christianity that have influenced who they are, dressed in the suits, having certain ways in which they do their church service, some of the, some of the more charismatic type of things. What I like though is I like that What's happened in those cultures that I've been a part of is you see a mesh of the Western influence, but a rekindling of the native influence because of the generational progress that's happened. You know, a father's son and grandson who grow up with that influence, they also grow up with the influence of their native culture. And so you get this incredible just mashup of native Western worship that becomes something brand new. And to me, that's progress. That is not living in isolation. And it's interesting to see these three individuals representing the positive and negatives of what it means to be isolated. The Yeti community, they're perfectly fine with that. And Mr. Link says it best. He says, your utopia sucks. And I agree. It's hilarious. It's my son's favorite line, by the way. And it's oh, actually his favorite line is that think that was quoting it correctly. But I think that Mr. Link represents what we feel that utopia isn't about being isolated. A utopia is about having community and establishing value and purpose with the people that you're actually in community with. A utopia cannot be enjoyed alone apart from other individuals. I like it. I completely agree with you, 100%. And and I love that that's the lesson that they come to learn, like by the end of the movie, with ultimately Mr. Link being in relationship with Frost and going forward in their lives together, like as partners, as friends, um, to get you know in community. It's they're not in Sh the beautiful Shangri La, and they clearly are not the same species. But that's not what matters. What matters is being with someone who 
wants to be with you and wants to be part of your life and engaged with you. And a big part of this movie actually revolves around Mr. Link figuring out his identity. One thing that you and I love to discuss in movies, we like to see it when it's well done. Um, and I think it's really a cool exploration of that here. A defining moment specifically comes when he tells Frost this wonderful little story about why he chose the name Susan for himself. And this is one of the things that I like best about great animated movies. And, and they can, this can be done in live action as well, but for some reason animation for me, it works a lot better, but is where you can make this so funny, so humorous, but so absolutely cutting to the core of the social statement it's making. It really resonated with me. And this was almost my connecting point, him choosing this name. So I'm wondering what you thought about this and what, what do you think the reasons are for Mr. Link? Or what do you, I guess I should say this, what do the reasons for his choice say about how he views himself and how he wants others to see him? When it comes to a name, Again, if I'm thinking back to a, a biblical perspective, oftentimes a name wasn't just given arbitrarily. It was given based on familial history and it had value. And the way in which he describes getting the name Susan was less about the name itself, but what it represented. And I think that when you give yourself a name or when a name is given to you, and specifically for him, he feels purposeful. He feels a sense of attachment to the value and the character traits of what that name Susan represented. I love the fact that for comedy, Frost says, but it's a girl's name. And he goes, yeah, but it's a girl's name. Yeah. And I think what that tells me is he's not attaching gender to that. He's not attaching sex to that. He is attaching value and meaning to it based on the experience he had with the person who was connected to that. It didn't matter that it was a girl or a boy, man or woman. It was that it was a name and the name itself was powerful because of what came with it. You could make the argument that there's a little gender role commentary happening here. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But I think for him specifically in this, it's more about what that name represents. And so being called Susan is like being called King or being given a nickname because that nickname comes with value. It comes with a character trait that, that you are representing, that you are embodying. And to him, the name Susan embodied something that he was proud of and is proud of. And, and I think that's a very sincere thing to take on. I completely agree. I love the fact that he tells this story with it and it boils down to a prospector who saw him smiled and didn't run. And so he is associating the name Susan with kindness, with a lack of fear, with acceptance. And that's a crazy duality to its meaning when it is taken into the context of its social message that is a real thing playing out in the world today. And that's one of the things I thought is just so brilliant about the way that Laika tells these stories. It's subtle. And to your point, this can be taken. If, if you were not in the world today with transgender issues on the forefront of the political landscape and, and society, it would still work just as fine. If I, I hope that makes sense, listeners. Like the best social commentary works regardless of whether you see it as social commentary or not. In my opinion, when we're talking about stories, absolutely. And I think Mr. Link represents that ideological character who doesn't have ethnocentrism attached to him because he doesn't have a biasness. He doesn't know what it means to be anything more than who he is. And to him, the best of who he can be is being seen by someone and not being a, not being feared. And I think that it's because of that that he can respond the way he does throughout the movie because he sees the best in everyone else. 
He sees the best in the Yetis until I guess not. He also sees the best in, 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 uh, Adeline and he sees the best in Frost. And I think he represents what we long to be. And that's looking at people with the characteristic of love and not trying to love them, but being a loving person to everyone, regardless of who they are, what they look like, where they come from. And I, I, I like that representation and I like the way that it's articulated in that, in that scene. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, and it continues to play out with, with Frost because he's also has identity issues. You know, Adeline tells him at one point, I think the great Lionel Frost is actually a myth because he is wrapping his identity in legacy and this idea of being remembered instead of the here and now and the relationships that we have and our actions within those relationships being what matters. Uh, and I think a lot of people do this in real life. I mean, we all can easily get wrapped up in worrying about what we're going to leave behind versus what are we doing right now and, and what is the priority in our lives? Is it yeah. this moment or is it prepping for how people will see us down the road? I, I, and right. I think this this movie makes a good case of, you know, it's important to prioritize how people see you now mm -hmm. as in if you're doing the right thing and you're being a good person and compassionate, then that is the way you will ultimately be remembered best. Right. He reminds me a lot of Gus from the fault in our stars where he's pursuing something bigger when what's right in front of him is really what matters. Absolutely. Well, Adeline helps him realize that. And She's a great addition to this squad. And I think the movie could have played out without her. And I thought it was going to go that route. Obviously, she was a surprise to me when she showed up uh, and became this third member of the team, essentially. I think it could have easily gone with her being the token female sidekick that happens in a ton of movies. But instead, Missing Link turns her into this amazing equal to frost and the fact that she's an old flame only adds some really great dramatic tension from their past without ever fully turning this into a romantic type of movie where she's there just to be an interest for him and she is ultimately the one that helps him see his selfishness the great moment uh, on the boat where Mr. Link is feeling very down and she pushes him out to go talk to him. What did you think of Adeline's arc? If you, if you even think she had one at all and her importance to both Frost and Link in the story, like how would it have, would it have been a lot different without her? Oh, absolutely. I think she is the Miriam of this movie to, to Frost, Indiana Jones. And she has equal as much value as Miriam did for for Indiana Jones. And the reason why in this particular instance is that she challenges him. She not only kind of writes the ship for him in terms of him understanding motivations, but she also lets him know that she is not a thing to be pursued. She is not a discovery. And I like the fact that her arc is really about her own grief and how she is dealing with the loss of her husband, what he brought, and how she, I believe she was his partner as well, like equal in that regard. But this journey for her allows her to realize that she can go on her own, that she is strong. And by being able to walk alongside and equal with Frost and be a friend to both him and Mr. Link, I think it allowed her and allowed us as an audience to see her growth and get beyond being in the unintentional shadow of her husband. Even though she was probably equal with him, he was the discoverer. He was the explorer. She was his wife. And this gave her opportunity and justification to say, I'm going on my own. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think there's just so much great nuance in her character. The fact that 
she and Frost have this past, this romantic past, it so easily could have overshadowed who she is now. But instead, we get a picture of a woman who, yes, she had this previous relationship with him, and he tries to call back to that several times. He's actually kind of a jerk a lot of times when you think about it. The way that Frost acts, he's not that great of a person for a lot of this movie. And he is talking to her about that, and she's like, no, this was my husband. Don't act like I didn't care about him just because he's gone now. I loved him, and I chose him. And that was partially because of you and your decision to go away. And when she clearly is the kind of... She clearly is stating that when she made the decision to be married to her husband, she made that decision and was happy with it. And so many movies depict relationships differently than that. They depict them as the character who chose, in this case, she chose her husband, but she always longed for Lionel Frost. And we don't see that here. And I think it's fantastic that we don't see that here. The other thing about her is she never tries to make her relationship with Mr. Link more important than Frost's. She recognizes that there is a special thing that connects those two. And specifically that Mr. Link looks up to Frost and wants that connection with Frost. And she doesn't try to insert herself and be the person that Mr. Link needs. Instead, she helps Frost become the person that Mr. Link wants Frost to become. Yes. In order for them to have a relationship. She's a great mediator. And I think she, she, she represents that thing that connects people, which is equally as valuable because we know that she and Frost are not going to get together. At some point, I mean, maybe we do, maybe we don't, but it's because she elevates his companionship with Mr. Link and knows the value of that, that we're not even thinking about that necessarily. Yeah, I personally assumed that because it was a movie (laughs) and movies do that, that they were going to end up together. But I've got another thought on that later. Before we move into connecting points, I actually wanted to ask you, you brought this up about how they jokingly talked about going to Atlantis. We have that opening scene with the Loch Ness Monster. We get to see these pictures in his office of various creatures and exploration that he's done. They, we see him discover yetis and go to Shangri-La. So we know that more mythical creatures and places exist in this world. You mentioned you'd like a series about this. Would you watch a sequel? And also, what do you think are some other fun places or creatures that could be discovered? I... I don't want a sequel. I want a series because of the fact that there are other places like the Lost City of Gold, I think would be kind of fun. But I think really, for me, I would find enjoyment in that chemistry between him and Mr. Link. Because to me, the adventure, despite the destination, I think is really where the entertainment value is. And to have a half hour or 45 minute episode where they're checking out the lost city of gold or maybe they're looking going to space or or they're checking out the pyramids of some kind to me i think seeing them interact with one another as kind of like a like a buddy movie or a buddy show means more to me than the actual destination that would be plus one for me that would be equally like oh that'd be cool to go see the lost city of gold or to to go find the the elusive unicorn but more for me, I would love to see more of them as a team and how they react to different people. In fact, I'd love to see them have a villain that's constantly on their tail as they're going through these different adventures, kind of like National Treasure in a way, but on a smaller scale. Well, it can't be the same villains because they got rid of those. Of course, uh, but, you <laughs> can have, but, but you can have something. You, know, you can bring invent new ones. Well, I'm going to slightly disagree, not just because I'm not a huge series guy. I would actually watch a series on this as well. I think it would be great. But stop motion animation is a lengthy, lengthy process for it to look like this. It takes, I think, three years for this movie to be made. It's incredible. And so I would like to see it more focused in its storytelling where they are just going to Atlantis or maybe they're discovering one new creature maybe one or two, and one or two locales, but keep it kind of condensed into one globe-trotting adventure with a a bigger theme. I would definitely want Adeline to be a part of that, whether it's a situation that she has disappeared in the Lost City of Gold or searching for it, just like Percy Fawcett did, 
and they're going to seek her out and maybe they're, you know, discovering some new creature in the Amazon rainforest or wherever as well when they're looking for this lost place. I think there's a lot of ways it could go, but I think we both just agree that we enjoy these characters and their chemistry together so much that we would love to see more. In Absolutely. some way or fashion, it, it's a kind of, it's kind of an original animated movie that you do want more of. And what I love about Like is we haven't been getting sequels with them. Now they did do a few adaptations early on. They did Coraline, but Kubo is original. Um, Missing Link is original mm-hmm. and it's really refreshing to get that kind of story told in the animated world. Well, if we can get the same cast, regardless of TV series or sequel movie, I'm on board. Absolutely. Well, let's jump into the connecting points. I'm actually going to go first on this one, I think. And the connecting point I have, and I guess I'll just go and spoil it. The connecting point we have is the final scene of Adeline saying goodbye, or essentially the ending of the movie. This is maybe the most shocking moment to me. And I mentioned this earlier, Patrick, because... The journey is over, everyone has made amends, and we are seemingly about to have the happy ending that features what I thought was going to be a new couple, Lionel and Adeline, and then the two new best friends and co-workers, Lionel and Mr. Link. But instead, right as Lionel is about to kiss Adeline again, she stops him. But then, to my surprise, she compliments him. And she tells him this. She says that he is indeed great, but that she deserves greater and wants to have her own adventure. And in almost every other movie, the leading male goes through a change of heart, oftentimes brought on by a supporting female character love interest who helps him see the airing of his ways and the way of his thinking. And in the end, he ultimately still wins her affection. I think Laika's willingness to subvert this trope is really refreshing. And it's extremely true to Adeline's character as we've seen her portrayed. She's always been feisty, opinionated, and very clearly capable of taking care of herself. So her choice in this moment highlights something very important. That a person can change for the better and still not get everything they want because of past mistakes. That Lionel is still a man who lied, who stole a map, and who has a very long history of not being compassionate. And that that is not completely erased just because he made progress. And so it also encourages women with big dreams to not let themselves be tied to the dreams of anyone else, man or otherwise, but rather to go out and experience what they want on their own terms and find that. And I love it. It's an amazing, charming awesome ending that finishes off this story on a really high note for me. I agree. And I think it's, it's probably why it's both of our connecting points because it is consistent with who she is. If you were to subvert that and, and actually give in, it would diminish who she is as a character and who she's been consistently throughout the movie. There's a line that she says to him, I think it's on the boat prior to the, the Susan conversation where she says, you and Susan are no different at all wanting to belong in all the wrong places. And I'm not going to say that she lives there too, but I think she recognizes when it's time to move to a place that she can feel valued. And for her, it's being on her own adventure. It's being her own woman and representing who she is apart from a partner, apart from a husband or another explorer. And I don't think it negates who these other two folks are by any means. She's just saying, I need to do this on my own. I've got to define my own path. Because if I were to continue down the path that we're on right now, I would, even if you didn't do it intentionally, be behind you. It may speak to the culture that they're in. It may speak to just who she is as a woman. But I think it's fantastic that she does it in a way that's very tender. It doesn't feel abrasive. It feels very honest. And it feels like, yeah, that makes sense. And I love that he doesn't get off the hook. I love that he is essentially paying for his consequences, that he's reaping the choices that he made, but he's not being punished for that. He's just giving 
her up or she's giving herself up from being his next discovery. Yeah, for sure, man. I, I think it's really sweet. And I'm glad that you picked up on that, too. To be completely clear on this, we actually both had the top two connecting points. Like we we were torn between this scene and the Susan moment. And that's pretty cool. Like not only did we come up with the same one, but we really came up with the same two because we were both going back and forth between them. And that's always fun to note, I think. Absolutely. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of Feelin' Film. We hope that you guys have enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed talking. Um, next week, FF Plus will feature several more reviews, including The Curse of La La Rona. Oh, I can't roll those R's. I wish I could. Uh, Little Woods, Okozen, and then the third episode of the new Twilight Zone series called Replay. We also chat some about a certain new trailer that has forced its way into film fanatic conversations everywhere this past week. So you'll want to check that out. Aaron, thank you again for another great conversation. And we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.